Welcome to the Apartment Operators Podcast, where you can learn from experienced operators what it really means to be an apartment operator. No fluff, no sugarcoating, just the raw, unfiltered truth of the ups and downs of operating multifamily communities. Welcome, everybody, to the Operators Podcast. My name is Joseph Goslin, and I'm your host. Today, we have Brian Burke from Praxis Capital. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Awesome. Brian is one of the best operators I know. He's got a huge portfolio. He's done a lot of things over the last few years. Brian, why don't you take a couple of minutes and tell our audience a little bit more about uh, your organization and a little bit about the history of what you've been doing? Yeah, I'm the president and CEO of Praxis Capital. We've uh, been in business now. Uh, geez, I've been doing this for 30 years now. Bought about a half a billion dollars worth of real estate. Uh, our current portfolio is around 250 million of multifamily. We got about 3,000 units uh, in several states across the country. You know, our model is to uh, acquire underperforming uh, multifamily assets, fix them up, and uh, and and run them for a while, and then ultimately we we uh, we sell them. So, you know, kind of not an unheard of strategy. I'm sure a few people that you've talked to have done that, right, Joseph? Yeah, well, we hear the story over and over, but the, the reason we created this podcast is because there's a lot of podcasts out there that talk about how to buy, how to raise money, right? How to uh, put these deals together, but not a lot of podcasts out there that actually talk about, okay, you close the deal, now what? Right? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because there, there's, there's books. If you look at books, right, there's hundreds of books about how to acquire real estate, but very few books about how to operate it and manage it properly. And it's a, I always tell people, it's like the, the acquisition phase will take you, you know, maybe two months, maybe six months, but the operation phase could be six years or 60 years. Uh, so it's, uh, that's really where the rubber meets the road. So it's kind of cool that you're doing this podcast. Yeah, the way I like to say it is it's kind of like getting to the closing table is a sprint and then it starts the marathon. That's it. Right? That's exactly it's right. It's like if you, get to, if you get to the closing table thinking you're all done with your sprint, it's like, wait a second, we're going to start a marathon here. Right? Oh, I know. It's funny because people will be like, oh, gosh, I finally closed on this deal. I just, you know, it wore me out getting all the way through. And it's like, oh, you just wait. You haven't even gotten worn out yet. There's no time to be tired because this is just where it's getting started. <laughs> awesome. So let's jump into it. A 3,000 unit portfolio, that's a massive portfolio. That's very impressive. And I know that along the way you sold some, you bought some, right? So, so you probably have a lot more units under your belt over the time. Um, how did you get started? Well, I got started like like any new real estate investor would start. I got started flipping houses. I uh, I was uh, buying single family homes, fixing them up, and reselling them. Uh, at, at first, I was doing it. Uh, you know, I bought my first deal with hundred percent financing. I had a, a a loan company. You know, a lender made me the first loan. The seller carried back the down payment. I fixed it up and rented it out for a while, and then ultimately resold it. My second deal, I bought by cash advancing all my credit cards <laughs> and using that to, to to buy a property subject to the existing financing. And then then I then I figured out, wait a minute, I could actually get other people to partner with me and and, and bring money to the table so I could close. Uh, so that's when I started, you know, using other people's money, so to speak, and started just you know buying houses uh in partnerships with other people that would bring some cash and we'd fix them up and resell them and you know it, it, the business grew over the course of about a decade and a half and then uh and then we started getting into that crazy time in the market of around 2005 06 
you know, the market was just getting really bizarre. And I'm like, you know, I got to get out of here because nothing makes any sense. So basically stopped buying for a few years, maybe about two years, almost stopped buying. And then the market was just collapsing around us. And it was great because all of a sudden there was just opportunity everywhere. It was like drinking from a fire hose. So the business just really grew as a result of all the foreclosures. You know, we had been buying foreclosures for years. And so uh, we just started, uh, you know, we went from doing, you know, a dozen houses a year pre-crash to over a hundred houses a year post-crash. And, you know, in conjunction with that, we were raising a lot of money to acquire all these houses and said, geez, you know, what's going to happen when all these foreclosures are gone? What are we going to do? Uh, and, and I thought, you know what? Multifamily. I, I bought my first multifamily property almost 20 years ago. And I said, you know, I know that business. We can, we can move all these investors into multifamily investments and really scale this thing. And, and that's what we've done. So, you know, the last Geez, I guess, uh, you know, 15 years have had a, a pretty heavy focus on multifamily and the last 10 years, especially uh, a very, uh, very large focus on multifamily. That's phenomenal. It's kind of like it's growth, growth, growth. Wait a second. Something's going to happen. Let's pause for a second. And you guys are, are out in California, right? Yeah, that's right. So obviously everything went completely bananas over there in the big crash of 08, right? So... Oh, I was buying properties. I would, it was funny. I would look at the transaction history of a property that I would buy. And there were properties I was purchasing and I'd look back in the transaction history and I go, I've just paid less for this property than the guy that bought it in 1982. I literally, we set the clock back 30 years uh, when that happened and stuff was like, you know, a good market was 30% off. A bad market was 70% off. And, you know, we were just buying stuff pennies on the dollar. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity. We'll never see it again. Everybody wonders, like, is this next crash going to look like that? Is COVID going to cause, you know, the market to do that? And I don't think so. I think we had our shot at that. And, you know, now we, now we got to work for a living. Well, I, I actually agree with you a lot on that one, but I have my reasoning. What is your reasoning? I think that's a subject a lot of our listeners would want to hear your insights on. What do you well, think we're never going to see another 2008? Well, we're certainly not going to see it now. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, a hundred years from now we will or something like that. But in our lifetimes, I don't expect it. Uh, one of the, the main reasons is that there's so much money uh, chasing real estate right now. Uh, there's literally hundreds of billions of dollars in dry powder waiting for real estate opportunities and if the prices were to drop even 10%, that capital is going to flood into the market. You also have the, uh, the fundamental support for, for real estate, especially in the residential asset class, because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the population growth and, you know, people are having babies and you know, there's more and more people, but there's development restrictions. It's not like you can just go slap up, you know, 100,000 units in a day. Uh, it takes a long time to get projects approved. They're very expensive to build. Uh, and, you know, construction loans aren't the easiest thing to get either. So you've got supply side constraint to some extent that helps buoy pricing. Uh, and I think, you know, with those two factors, you know, residential real estate is going to hold up really well. Now, if, if you're in the hotel business or you own restaurant properties or you own retail, uh, maybe even if you own a lot of office, I'd be a little bit more worried right now. 
but if you're a residential owner, I think residential is going to be the shining star. Residential and industrial, industrial properties also will be the shining stars through through this pandemic reset, so to speak. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, the way I look at this is, in 08, the real estate crash was kind of like a, a fallout from the job market crash, right? It started with Lehman Marcus and all that falling apart and then stocks drop and then layoffs and then real estate got impacted, right? In 2007 and eight, if you got laid off, that's it. You, you had nowhere to find a job because nobody was hiring and, and no way to pay a mortgage, right? But today, there's so many other opportunities that have been created since then that were not available then, right? So for example, everybody can jump in and drive an Uber. Yeah. Everybody can take their house, Airbnb it while they're renting a smaller unit, right, a smaller apartment and try to make the mortgage payment. There is websites like Upwork and Fiverr that allows you to do small jobs, basically micro entrepreneurial kind of things that can get you income even in a world where nobody's hiring. Uh, so I think just that alone is never going to allow us to see the big massive impact that we saw in 2007 and eight. Uh, it's kind of like funny how technology changes the world sometimes, right? And I'm yeah, spot on with you on the industrial, right? I think COVID basically skyrocketed all the e-com and even the people that were very hesitant about online shopping before are now basically forced into online shopping. So all that e-com is going to need more warehouse space, more manufacturing space, more, a lot more space in the industrial. I think you're spot on on the industrial as well. Yeah, transportation, logistics, storage. Uh, you know, the retail used to be uh, the corner of Maine and Maine. You had to have high visibility. You'd have a lot of square footage to store your inventory that's for sale. You know, now your inventory is tucked into some, you know, nondescript, unlabeled warehouse uh, on a corner that you probably couldn't even find without GPS. Yeah. Uh, and, and that changes the face of, you know, kind of the retail slash uh, industrial sector. And it's, it's going to create uh, a little bit of a reset there. So I'm glad I'm not in the retail space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I have faith in, in humanity that will find a way to repurpose. Yes. Right? That piece of real estate is not going to go away. It's still going to be there because you can't get a haircut online and you can't get your nails done online, right? So there are certain things that are still going to require physical uh, um, um, access. But I also think that we're going to see a lot of repurposing of, of the retail space for other purposes, right? I've heard yeah. about people that take like anchor stores that used to be a Kroger or used to be an Albertsons and convert them into big gyms or convert them into um, climate control um, storage units and all kind of repurposing, right? And I think that's still going to help boost commercial real estate in the next few years. Uh, there's no limit for creativity, right? That's true. Uh, Somebody's going to think of something. Yeah. Well, we're kind of diverting here from the main podcast. I know I can speak for hours with you. Uh, we've done that before. Uh, so I'm going to try to rein us back in. Uh, 3,000 units, right? Do you guys self-manage or do you guys use third party? Yeah, we are now vertically integrated. We, um, we started, you know, most people should start uh, with third party management. 
you know, you need third-party management companies, uh, experience, market contacts, uh, you know, network, all that stuff to, to kind of get yourself off the ground. And that's what we did originally. And uh, uh, about four years ago, we vertically integrated, we created our own management company. It has its own organizational chart. Uh, you know, I'm, I may own all the stock, but it has its own CEO. Uh, and, you know, now I'm, I'm just the chairman, so I, I don't have much say in it. I let them run it. Um, my goal as an asset manager is to make sure that they're achieving uh, goal and to provide uh, guidance and direction to ensure that you know the plan is is tracking according to what we want. Now, having said that, the team uh, at our management company is enormously more experienced than even I am. Uh, the CEO of my management company has forty thousand units and forty years of property management experience. He's started national multifamily management companies for institutional investors six times in his career. And so, you know, we had this tremendous advantage that we could build a management company and almost instantly at the flip of a switch, uh, we had a 40 year operating history. You know, we had all of the uh, policy and procedures manuals. And I mean, everything that you could imagine uh, we had that at our fingertips almost right away. And so we've got a great team there and, you know, that's, that's our management division. And, and we now have control of the entire process from start to finish by, uh, by doing that vertical integration. Yeah, that, that's great. So what was the trigger? What was the point where you said no more third party, it's time to set up my own? Well, the trigger, interestingly enough, uh, you know, the, the, there was an undercurrent that had been festering for a while. Uh, and the undercurrent was we wanted to attract large uh, investors. In other words, uh, institutional partners, uh, large family offices, people who could write multi-million dollar checks. And the sophisticated investors in that space have come to understand that operators that are vertically integrated produce better results than operators that uh, manage via third party. That's their experience. Uh, this is them talking, not me talking. This is the feedback we were receiving when we had third party management. Hey, you're, you guys sound like you're experienced. That's great. Uh, we'd love to work with you, but you know, if you guys don't manage your own assets, um, you know, call us when you do basically was what the message we were getting. So that was the undercurrent that was going for a while. Uh, that wasn't what drove the decision though. Uh, what drove the decision was just a, a fortunate uh, and random and unplanned meeting uh, where I got a call from a guy that said, hey, me and two of my uh, ex-competitor colleagues uh, have been in the institutional space for between 20 and 40 years working for a variety of shops. We would like to be more entrepreneurial and, you know, kind of have a stake in the outcome. Um, and so we're looking for a new opportunity. And a friend of mine knew you and said, we should talk to you and see if you wanted to do something together. So after a number of months, uh, we ultimately found that there was a good match here. And if they joined our organization, uh, we could take this company to the next level. Well, one of the three colleagues is the CEO of our management company. You know, his, his specialty was management. And it's like, if these guys join, 
uh, not only do I have a CFO and an acquisitions uh, specialist, I also get a property management specialist. And between the three of them, it was like a company in a box. Uh, it's like you come in and join the company and now we can create all of these things. And that was the real catalyst was it was finding the right person. And, you know, you can say, oh, I'm going to create a management company all you want. But if you don't have the right person in place to run it for you, you're just, you know, you're shooting in the dark, you're fumbling around, you're trying to figure it out for yourself. I didn't want to do any of that stuff. I hate property management. Uh, there's, there's, there's no business I wanted to be in less than property management. But if I can have full control over our assets and I have an expert at the helm that's fielding all that day-to-day -day property management garbage that I don't want to field, uh, <laughs> that is the time and that was the catalyst. And that's really what set this plan in motion. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate. We postponed as, as far as we could the decision to uh, take over self-management, but uh, we were pushed into it. Uh, mostly because of the performance of the previous property management companies. So, uh, uh, yeah, we had to do the same step. Uh, and, and you're right. You're absolutely right with finding the key player. Um, and this is probably my best advice to anyone thinking about setting up their own company management. Don't look for a number two. Look for a number one. Right? Just like you figured out this is going to be my number one. He's going to be the CEO. He's going to run the show and I can trust him, right? That's what we did when we were looking for uh, our VP of, of operations. Find me a number one. Find me someone that at some point I'll be able to hand over the keys and not deal with that because you're right. Uh, property management is more brain damage uh, uh, than anything else, but it's a necessarily evil, necessary evil in our business. And how... Retrospectively, right, looking backwards to all the properties that you basically took over from third party to the in-house management company, what do you see in the performance? What do you see in the uh, outcomes of those properties compared to what it was before? Well, here's what's really interesting, and this may take you a little bit by surprise. We didn't, we didn't convert any of them. So what we did was uh, we, we had a few properties that were ready for disposition and this was just all kind of right in that fortuitous timing, right? So, uh, so what we did is we started acquiring a lot of property and we were putting all the properties we were acquiring into the vertical integration platform and all the properties we had existing, we left on third-party management. And our third-party management companies were doing a great job. You know, it was the, the decision had nothing to do with, uh, you know, their performance and, you know, or slighting them in any way. They were really doing a good job for us. Uh, for us, it was really just about, having full control over the process. So uh, we, uh, we made that change within about a year of creating our property management company. We only had, uh, I think, two properties left on third party management. Uh, and we sold one of those this year. And so we still do have one property left on third party management. And, you know, the reason we don't take it over uh, really is because it's the only property we own in that market. And for us, our, our management platform is a lot more efficient if we can build some scale in the markets where we are. So if we started acquiring additional properties in that market, for example, uh, there's a likelihood then maybe we would take that property over. Um, 
but we, we weren't buying more assets in the markets where we were. One of the big reasons I brought these guys on is because we wanted to buy in markets where we were not. And so, you know, originally we were 100% in Texas. Everything we owned was in Texas. We wanted, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted out of Texas. And it's, you know, nothing wrong with Texas. It's just that it was getting hyper competitive uh, to the point where ridiculously so. And I thought, you know, if there's a lot of other really good markets that we should also be looking in. We can't rely on only Texas to supply us all of our acquisition uh, deal flow. Let's go national and, and look everywhere. And so that's what we did. And, you know, we were able to expand into Arizona, Georgia, Florida, uh, you know, in these markets because, you know, the team that, that joined us had experience in all those markets. So as we were adding on properties, we were adding them in new markets and we were basically selling out of Texas. Uh, so that's kind of how the transition played out. And it was a little bit weird, you know, most companies, they might go in and, you know, the last company that the CEO of my management company worked for, he literally created a management company and then took 25,000 units from third party management to in-house management in 90 days. Jeez. And, and to me, that's just, that is crazy. I don't know how he did that. That's I didn't insane. want to create that kind of disruption. I wanted to have like a smooth and organized transition, kind of build a platform and scale into one and out of the other system and not just make a switch. Well, I guess that's where the experience comes in place, right? It's like 25,000 units in 90 days is insanely hard, even for national level property management companies. So uh, um, sounds like you got a real A player over there uh, that you brought on board. Uh, so, I want, I want to talk about before and after, right? Or even now that you still have a third party property management, how does the organization work with them? As an asset manager, how do you work with them? How often do you talk? What kind of reports are you asking for? Um, how does that integration work today? Yeah, on, on our uh, third party, it's kind of funny. Our third party management, we have one property left and we have a weekly phone call with that property manager uh, and, and uh, periodic visits, at least once a quarter visits, sometimes monthly visits to the property. Uh, on the third party management or on the uh, uh, vertically integrated side of the platform, which is you know, now 90 something percent of our portfolio, uh, we, we have biweekly operations calls. Uh, the, uh, the operations team, of course, they talk all the time. They'll have weekly manager calls. Uh, they, they have daily uh, check-ins between our area vice president, our chief operating officer, and our uh, CEO. You know, they're in constant communication. Uh, we use like a ring central system where they don't even have to dial full numbers. Everybody is just an extension, no matter where in the country you are, three digits and you have them on the phone. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's constant communication there. My focus is kind of threefold. Uh, my focus is uh, acquisitions, capital, uh, capital stack, uh, and asset management. So, um, you know, we're looking for new opportunities to buy. We're looking for new money to be able to finance them. And then we're looking, for, looking at the performance operations team to ensure that, uh, you know, we're, we're tracking according to plan. So we have a, a biweekly operations call where we talk about every property and you know what's going on and that sort of stuff but most importantly is we have a really incredible technological infrastructure and this is what is a real advantage to being vertically integrated over non-vertically integrated is 
you know, within our, you know, this is enterprise grade software where we literally, I can go in anytime, day or night, 24 seven. I have a dashboard where I can see the performance up to the minute of every asset in our portfolio. I can see what our occupancy is. I can see how many pieces of traffic came through the front door. I can see how many leases were signed, how many of those pieces of traffic were called back. Uh, you know, how, uh, how many leases were denied or canceled, uh, move-ins and move-outs, uh, how much money was collected today and how, uh, what was put in the bank. All of this stuff is available 24-7, 365, anytime, portfolio-wide. And I can look at that either as a portfolio as a whole or as a property individually. And, and you know, so that coupled with weekly reports that, that are generated and automatically sent out by the system, plus another weekly report that's generated by our managers and sent out, there's literally almost a daily and constant communication flow uh, from me and our operations team to know exactly what's going on at the property. Not to mention that we have full video security camera at every property that I can log in any time and see almost every corner of the property from anywhere that I am uh, at any time I want to. So, you know, we've got a, a great technological backbone and that's the big advantage of vertical integration is you can put all that stuff and wrap it all together. Yeah, it definitely makes it a lot simple because especially at your portfolio size, uh, other operators that have that size that we talk to sometimes have to deal with one third party that has Entrada and one of them has RealPage and the other one have one site and it's kind of like it's all over the place and then creating an aggregated report becomes a real nightmare, right? So yeah. uh, what's the platform you guys are using, if you don't mind saying? Yeah, we, we use RealPage. Uh, so we have one site at the properties. We have uh, RealPage Business Intelligence uh, for the asset management side uh, and the RealPage Accounting Suite. So the whole thing kind of wraps up all together so that you know if a, a manager can sign a lease, put it into one site, uh, collect the rent payment goes right into real page accounting uh, so that the, all of that stuff is all uh, interconnected with one another. And so from property management to accounting to reporting is all within one package. Yeah. Real page is a great software. Uh, we use some of their modules as well. Um, it, you and I participate in the IMN speaker circle every once in a while. It's like, I always find it funny to go watch the property management software panel because you, you look on the panel and there's like six people and it's like, okay, what are you using? Well, we used to use RealPage, we're now using Trada. Next guy goes, we used to use Trada, now we're using Yardi. It's kind of like people always kind of flip and they always have their opinions. Every software has its benefits and it's, it's uh, not so great uh, aspects. Uh, but uh, the important thing is to be able to leverage and use all the tools and the capabilities the software gives you. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that and everybody, everybody has a preference for a reason, you know, and sometimes they switch because, oh, that guy gave me a better price or something like that. You know, that might be one reason, or I was frustrated with this component. I couldn't get it to work. So, you know, I switched, uh, I switched companies, you know, our reason for using the one that we use is because, you know, the, the head of my management company has been using this platform at all of the companies that he's been with, he's used this platform. Uh, so it's going on uh, almost 30 something years that he's used the RealPage platform. And our chief operating officer was actually one of the beta testers for uh, a number of components for the RealPage platform. So, and it was also a corporate train the trainer. Uh, so, you know, we've, 
the, the staff, the team that I have has such an intimate level of knowledge of all of the intricacies of this system that we know how to use it to its maximum capability. And it's difficult. There's a lot of pieces to this that if you just come in and go, okay, I've never used this before. I'm going to come in and try to use it. It will boggle your mind how complicated it is. But if you've been using it your whole life and it's almost like, you know, reach, uh, if you go to reach for a bottle of water on your desk, you just go grab it, right? But yeah. you don't have to think about, okay, I've got to move my arm to the left. I need to open my fingers, uh, you know, put, put the hand around the, uh, the bottle, grasp it. You know, you don't think about all those pieces. You just reach your hand out and grab it. And that's how it is for my team when they use RealPage. They just reach out and grab it because they know where all, the, where all the pieces are. Yeah, and, and I think I have a background in software development, right? And we've built software for multiple companies. And the software is only as good as the user's ability to use it. Yes. Right? If you use 10% of the capabilities, you will feel that you're not getting enough value, right? But every single day, um, um, I would swing by and, you know, see one of my team members bang the head against the wall. It's like, well, wait, did you know you can do it that way? It's like, oh my God. It's kind of like, it's just, <laughs> if you take the time, you learn the software and you actually use what they offer, all those property management software platforms out there are pretty robust. And again, they all have their pluses and minuses, but they're pretty robust and capable of doing a lot of things. And my experience is most people don't use, don't even use half of the capabilities. Yeah, that's right. I would agree with you. And, you know, they all kind of do the same thing, you know, really when you boil it down and they'll all do the same stuff if you know how to use it. And, you know, if you don't know how to use it or it's just not intuitive to you for whatever reason, then, you know, you make a switch, right? Yeah. Um, or you get more training. That's another one. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Either one of those would be, uh, would work for sure. Okay. So when we started talking about third party versus your own, you, you had the comment of everybody should start using third party. Um, think in hindsight, right? Uh, on your entire history, would you start your own sooner? Would you go later? And we're going to take aside for a second the coincidence of putting all four of you together in a room, right? Um, if that didn't happen, but you had control over it, would you start your own management company earlier? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, it's funny that you asked that question because one of the things I was looking at is I thought, well, until we get over 1,500 units, it kind of didn't make financial sense because there wasn't enough money there to support a full-time staff really i mean a, a management company requires some staff you've got to have an accountant uh, or a con corporate controller uh, you know at least an ap and ar person uh, and you got to have somebody that's in charge uh, of the organization and you need to have uh, you know uh, people in charge of the operations you know the properties themselves so as a as a small operator i couldn't get that to make any financial sense really when we were small but you know, really for me, I think back to my story of my first rental property and I bought this condo uh, as a, a, from a, a guy that, you know, a friend of a friend and I was going to rent it out. And uh, I, uh, I, I put an ad in the newspaper. This tells you how old I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I put an ad in the newspaper to find tenants and I got a call from a couple of girls that were uh, in school and were looking for a place. And I showed them the unit and they were really nice girls and, and they, uh, they had jobs and they were going to school and 
you know, their parents lived locally and this was going to be their first place together and all this other stuff. And I thought, great, I found my tenant. They filled out applications. There was nothing negative on the credit report. That I, I ran the credit report through a thing. I nothing, No red flags came back. And, and I said, okay, the apartment is yours. Meet me here. I'll give you the keys. Just bring me a cashier's check for the deposit. And we meet at the place and, and uh, we exchange keys and sign the leases. And, and they uh, say, oh, you know, we, we just didn't have time to get to the bank to get the cashier's check for the deposit. Here's a, we'll give you this personal check. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, I read never to do that in the book. All he says, you know, get cash for a cashier's check. But what do the books know? You know, I'm out here in the field. This is the real world. And in the real world, this is how things are done. So I take the, the personal check. I deposit it. About five days later, I get the notice that the check bounced. And so, of course, I call them up and no answer. And, you know, call them again and no answer. And serve a three-day notice and no response. And Finally, I have to go all the way through the eviction process. I had to evict them. Uh, they never responded to any of the eviction notices. I had to have the sheriff come out and, and, uh, and conduct the eviction. They never even came back for their stuff after they were evicted. And, you know, in sorting through their stuff, you know, about two, about two and a half, three months went by before I finally got them out. And, you know, I'm, there's like, writings throughout the apartment that, you know, you can see like when they first moved there, their handwriting was really neat. But by the time they were gone, it was completely sloppy. You could tell they were just started using drugs and, you know, their motor skills had declined. And, you know, I ended up having to conduct a public auction to have their stuff sold off. And, you know, and it was like uh, the, the, this long story that's already too long to go short now was that I realized I am a horrible, and I mean horrible, property manager. I should never be a property manager. I was too nice. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't want to be like, oh, you know, I'm the mean landlord and go get me the cashier's check or you can't have the keys. I wanted to be accommodating. Uh, I wanted to trust people. Uh, and that, that's just the wrong characteristics for a property manager. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I never wanted to be a property manager. So would I have started on a management company sooner if I didn't have somebody to run it? Absolutely not. Uh, would, should a new investor uh, start managing their own? Well, I guess if you're a better manager than I am, go for it. But I feel like you need to have somebody that's already learned their lessons the hard way on somebody else's dime and you know, knows what they're doing to come in and guide you as a new investor who hasn't learned your lessons yet on how to do this right. And people say, oh, nobody's gonna manage it better, my property better than I will, hogwash. Somebody who knows what they're doing will do better than somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, no matter how many books you read or how many podcasts you listen to or how well you think you know the business. It is a complicated, uh, hands-on, tactical sport uh, that requires experience and people skills. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's my soapbox. Yeah. Now, just to touch to a couple of points that you mentioned that are super critical for everybody to understand. Anybody that's considering starting their own management company have to understand that there's, first of all, there's a legal aspect of things, right? You got to know fair housing. You got to hire people that know fair housing. And if you don't understand all this and you don't have the experience or the knowledge of all the rules and regulations and a way to keep up with them, because they constantly change, um, then you can get in real hot water real fast, right? Uh, so, so that's one thing. Um, obviously, there's a difference between the eviction process in Texas versus the eviction process in California, uh, uh, but you gotta know where you are, you gotta know the rules, you gotta know the regulations. 
Um, the other aspect of, of the property management is, is spot on what you just said. You need people skills. Uh, people have that misconception that we're in the buildings business. We're not in the buildings business. We're in the people business, right? Because the empty buildings are not me bringing in the money. It's the residents. It's the people that live in those buildings that actually bring the, the money. And when you have people involved, everything can change on time and they're going to surprise you every single day, right? So you're absolutely spot on. I just wanted to highlight those two little things that are pretty critical for anybody thinking about their own management company. Um, we ask all of our guests to, to get a few of ideas from them about how they turn unit, turn properties, right? So uh, the usual story of buying something that can have a value add, do the value add and, and, and increasing the value. So other than increasing rent, right, or applying rubs, what are two, three things that you guys like to do in your organization to increase revenue? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of different things you can do uh, on the um, what do you, the, the ancillary revenue side. One thing that we've done and had some really good success with is when laundry uh, service contracts expire, have the laundry service people come and take all their machines, <laughs> and then we go in and renovate the uh, laundry room and we buy our own machines uh, and we get the now that you have the card uh, reading machines, uh, you know the people can uh, they use a uh, not a credit card, but like a special card for the laundry machine. Uh, so we don't have the cash collection problem where you have, you know, the managers taking all the coins and put them in their pocket. You know, you don't have the theft issue. Uh, so we, we dramatically increased the income at a property that we have in Florida when we converted over to, um, to owned laundry machines versus the uh, laundry lease system. That was a big success for us. Uh, another one is, uh, is uh, putting uh, laundry machines in units that have connections for residents that don't have their own laundry machines. Sometimes you can get $25 to $50 in additional rent uh, if the uh, unit comes with laundry machines versus them having to supply their own laundry machines. Uh, other things that we've done, um, uh, we've added covered parking to properties that don't have covered parking spots, especially in warmer climates like Arizona, Texas, uh, it's nice to have covered parking and you can rent those covered parking spaces out. We've gotten anywhere between $25 and $40 a month for covered parking. Another one is assigned parking. This one's interesting. It doesn't cost you a dime, uh, but you can say, look, we'll give you an assigned parking space that's near your front door uh, that's reserved for you and it's $15 a month. You know, so you can, uh, you can do assigned parking. That's almost a no cost, just the cost of the sign. Uh, other things, uh, valet trash, uh, where uh, they uh, pick up the trash from the front porch uh, for an added fee uh, instead of them having to go to the dumpster. That's another one. Uh, solar is another one. And, and uh, one interesting twist with covered parking is what about using solar panels for your covered parking? Uh, and then you can get a little bit of utility savings for your house electric meter. Uh, at the same time that you're uh, getting uh, revenue for the car parking space underneath it. Uh, so that's another interesting one. Uh, you know, converting garages to storage or closets to storage units, adding storage units or closets. Uh, the list goes on and on. There's all kinds of ways. That's, that's fantastic. There's a lot of really great ideas here. Um, what about the other side of the NOI, right? Uh, saving on expenses. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, we don't, I don't place a lot of focus on expense savings. You know, the, the, uh, the improvements are so limited. You know, with, with revenue, the sky's the limit. You can, you can increase revenue exponentially, but you can only decrease expenses incrementally. So you don't ignore it, uh, but you certainly aren't going to get a huge swing out of expenses no matter what you do. But there are some things to look at. Number one is uh, property tax protests, uh, especially in areas where property taxes are increased to reassess market values periodically once a year, once every three years, once every four years, whatever the case may be, uh, protesting those assessed valuations with the uh, tax authorities can oftentimes result in substantial expense savings uh, or at least keeping the taxes where they were instead of having an enormous increase. Uh, so that's probably the biggest one you can do. Uh, the other one is of course, you know, water saving modifications, uh, you know, changing out to low flow toilets and shower heads and faucets is a, is a common one. Uh, we like to go into properties and change out the lighting to LED lighting. And, and it's one of the first things we do when we take over properties, you go and you change all the lighting. And it's like, it's incredible because the residents are like, wow, there's new owners here. It's all bright now. You know, it's like almost instantly, like there's a new sheriff in town. It's cool what lighting can do. And the new LED lighting is much more energy efficient than the older style. And you can save a little bit of cost there. Uh, personnel is another one. A lot of times properties are overstaffed, uh, you know, and looking at the staffing matrix and making sure that they're appropriately staffed uh, is another one to get some expense savings there. Um, anything else that you can do is pennies, but you know, you, every penny you can save, um, it matters a little bit. Of course. Well, it, it's the way the NOI is calculated, right? A dollar saved and a dollar added is the exact same dollar same to dollar. the value, right? So, yeah. So that's phenomenal. Okay. So if you could just, uh, it's a question we ask everybody, if you could go back in time, uh, uh to young Brian, and the one thing you can tell yourself is like 2009 is the bottom by everything you can, right? Uh, what, what advice would you give yourself? I did exactly that. In 2009, <laughs> I started buying up rental houses. We bought 120 rental houses in the San Francisco Bay Area for about, I think around less than $15 million. And we sold them for about $45 million five years later. So we did exactly that. We bought everything we could get our hands on. Uh, so geez, I mean, you know, what would the older self tell my younger self? Uh, I, I think I, I would say, you know, get, get to know more investors sooner. You know, when I first started in real estate, I was focused on how can I develop my own resources to, to get started in this business, cash advancing credit cards, you know, seller financing, you know, uh, buying subject to all those different kinds of things. And I didn't put any energy on getting myself out there for people to know who I was and what I was doing. So they would be attracted to what I was doing and want to supply funds to help grow that. Had I done that sooner, I probably, well, actually, you know what it probably would have happened. I probably would have built a huge portfolio and lost it all in the big crash because you know, you would have been so heavily invested. Instead, I had limited resources. I only had so much to lose uh, that I was able to actually scale out of the business before the crash happened to a great extent. Uh, but I would like to think uh, that I would have been smart enough to survive the same way I, I did survive 
uh, even if I had gone big. So I think I would have liked to have gone bigger a little bit faster. It, I'm a slow bloomer. It took me 15 years to really grow big. Well, and, and I think that this is something that we see over and over in, in all the people we interview. It's kind of, there's very, very few that went zero to 90, right? It's kind yeah. of like, uh, it, it's usually, it's, it's an exponential growth. You start with one and then two and then five and then seven, then 10, then 20, then 80, then, and so on and so on, right? So it's kind of like, it, it, it's a 20 years overnight success kind of thing. Uh, uh, that's what people say. So uh, I, thank you for that. I appreciate that insight. Uh, so for our listeners that want to reach out, maybe some of them want to invest with you, maybe some of them want to get advice, uh, uh, how can they find you? And we'll put all of that in the show notes, of course. Well, there's, uh, there's lots of ways. Uh, if they want to invest with us, the easiest way is to go to investwithpraxis.com. Uh, and they can watch the webinar on our fund that's open and accepting investors. Now, if you're accredited, you can do that. And I can say that because it's a 506C offering that allows me to advertise, but we only accept proven accredited investors. So if you're an accredited investor, you can go to investwithpraxis.com, uh, read about and watch the webinar on our, our latest fund offering. If you're not an accredited investor, uh, you know, you got to get to know us and we got to get to know you before you can invest in any of our future offerings. So the best way to learn more about us is to just go to our website. It's praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Learn about us there. You can find me and follow me on biggerpockets.com. I'm on there answering questions in the forums from time to time. Uh, you can catch me on Instagram at Investor Brian Burke or at Praxcap. Uh, or uh, catch me at one of the conferences once we can actually start getting back together again in person, uh, which hopefully won't be too long. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, Brian, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, you brought a lot of value to our listeners. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me as a part of it, Joseph. Great to see you again. Awesome. And for you, the listeners, thank you so much for listening again for us. Our, our website is aptopr.com. And if you could go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you consume your podcast and give us a rating, it would be highly appreciated. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to our show. If you want to enjoy more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. For questions or feedback, please visit our site at www.aptopr.com.